Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies. Um, it's our 32nd Annual Monetary Conference, and we still have the Fed. Uh, today, today we're going to, last year at our Monetary Conference, we asked a, a question, uh, one of my rhetorical questions. Was the Fed a good idea? <clears throat> and this year we're basically answering that question by having the title Alternatives to Central Banking Toward Free Market Money. And this topic is a topic that won't be discussed much in Washington, but Cato likes to go out and look at uh, the fundamentals and the first principles and uh, the Constitution. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And we have an outstanding group of distinguished speakers, and there's going to be a very nice uh, reception at the end of the day. Uh, sponsored by our friends at Overstock. Uh, Patrick Byrne will be our luncheon speaker today. Uh, uh, Axel Lionhuford, who some of you know, was supposed to be the luncheon speaker, but he's in his 80s, and uh, he came down with a bad cold, and he was going to fly out from the coast, but then uh, he couldn't do it. But he did give me his paper, which he entitled Monetary Muddles, which is a nice paper, uh, nice title. And uh, that's available in your, in your folders. The papers from this conference, as, as, as we normally do, will be published in, in the Cato Journal, uh, which I edit. And journals are outside from last year's conf conference, was a fed a good idea. With the lead article last year by uh, the president of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Charles Plosser, who titled it A Limited Central Bank. Um, So let me just take a moment before we get started to make a couple contrasts, two contrasts in particular. <clears throat> Let's contrast a monetary regime that is self-regulating, spontaneous, and independent of government meddling versus a discretionary central bank with a monopoly on pure fiat money. With pseudo-independence acting as a branch of government to fund the public debt and allocate credit to favored groups, in particular housing while manipulating interest rates and engaging in financial repression. And let's also contrast a free market money within a trusted network of private contracts versus a powerful central bank above the rule of law with virtually unlimited powers to print money out of thin air and regulate banks and non-bank financial institutions at will. The classical gold standard, not the interwar gold standard, but the classical gold standard, was a free market monetary system versus today's pure discretionary government fiat money regime. And yes, we're also entering the world of cryptocurrencies, uh, like Bitcoin, for example. And I think it's pretty cool when you, uh, you look at Bitcoin and the people that use it. And of course, one reason we invited Patrick Byrne today was Overstock was, I think, the first big online retailer that uh, adopted uh, Bitcoin. But who else has like a, a Bitcoin girl? And we have Naomi Rockwell with us today, the Bitcoin girl. Where's my, Naomi? You want to just stand up for a minute and take a bow? She usually wears a red dress. Uh, and uh, you know, we have the Bitcoin girl, but we don't have a Federal Reserve girl, except maybe Janet Yellen. Uh, 
So these cryptocurrencies give us a possibility of a private monetary base and the potential to have stable-valued free market currencies. We're not there yet, of course, but ongoing experimentation and technological advances may pave the way for F.A. Hayek's private competing currencies and the end of central banking, or at least the emergence of parallel currencies. I think competition is a good thing, and we need more of it. The late Nobel laureate economist and a, 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 a good friend of Cato's, uh, Jim Buchanan, wrote, quote, the dollar has absolutely no basis in any commodity base, no convertibility, close quote. He wrote that back in 1988. He also, in that same article, went on to say, what we have now is a monetary authority, that is the Fed, that essentially has a monopoly on the issue of fiat money with no guidelines to amount to anything. An authority that never would have been legislatively approved, that never would have been constitutionally approved on any kind of rational calculus, close quote. Now, in 1980, just after the election of Ronald Reagan, Buchanan recommended that a presidential commission be established to discuss the Fed's legitimacy. There was some support within the Reagan camp, but Arthur Burns, an ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, nixed it. As Buchanan noted, Burns, quote, would not have anything to do with any proposal that would challenge the authority of the central banking structure, close quote. Buchanan's aim was to, quote, to get a dialogue going about the basic fundamental rules of the game, the constitutional structure, close quote. He also felt there is, quote, a moral obligation to think that we can improve things, close quote. Well, that's the spirit of this conference and the spirit of the Cato Institute, especially Cato's new Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives that we just launched. And I'd like to introduce George Selgin, who is the director of that center. He left a full, full professorship, tenured, at a good school, University of Georgia, to come to Cato to run this center. And that takes some, some guts. Uh, to leave a tenure position. You don't find very many people doing that. So, uh, George, we're really happy to have you with us, and we're looking forward to great things. Uh, part of the center is also on regulatory issues, and Mark Calabria directs that part of the center, and he's done an outstanding job already, uh, and he's got a lot of work to do the, this year. And, of course, our CEO, John Allison, is a big backer of, of this center, so we appreciate John's uh, help as well. As, as well as all the people that have contributed to the center. And we also hired Lydia Mashburn uh, away from the Mercatus Center, our friends at the Mercatus Center. And uh, she's, she's doing a great job, and uh, she's going to be managing the center because George needs a manager, right, George? Uh, as we all do. Today, our distinguished speakers will examine four basic things. The, the Bitcoin revolutions are first panel, changing the monetary regime, constitutional regulatory issues is the second panel. Uh, we'll then have a nice, nice luncheon upstairs. And then the role uh, of gold in a market-based monetary system. And finally, the last panel, the path to fundamental reform. So we should have a very exciting day. Uh, so let's move now to our first speaker, our keynote speaker, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome Jim Grant. 
who many of you know, or at least read uh, his publication, The Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Uh, and his, there's a sample copy outside, and I hope you'll subscribe to it. Uh, it comes out twice a month, and uh, it's a very, very uh, useful device, uh, especially for those people uh, playing, you know, operating the markets. Uh, and he gets more into philosophy than a lot of these newsletters do. He began his career in journalism in 1972 at the Baltimore Sun, uh, the same place that Mencken uh, was, but not at the same time. Uh, in 1975, he joined the staff of Barron's, where he originated the current yield column. He's the author of seven books. His most recent book, uh, which we're going to have a book for him here on November 18th, that George Selgin's uh, running with the center, uh, The Forgotten Depression. 1921, the crash that cured itself. Uh, so I highly recommend that book. Uh, Jim has appeared uh, numerous times on various television programs, including 60 Minutes, The Charlie Rose Show, and CBS uh, Evening News. And he had a 10-year stint on, the wall, on Wall Street Week, I guess when uh, Louis Rukeyser was there, which was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, He's written for a variety of publications, including the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. You've seen many of his articles, I assume, and Foreign Affairs. Uh, he's a former Navy gunner's mate, which is a skill that comes in handy when you're trying to change the monetary regime. Uh, and a Phi Beta Kappa alumnus of Indiana University. And he earned a MA in International Relations from Columbia University. Please help me welcome Jim Grant. Well, I thank you, Jim, and I thank you, Cato, and I thank you, Friedrich Hayek. Now, is this audible? Yep. Is it? Yep. Is that audibility desirable? <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll find out later. Uh, not quite 40 years ago, as you certainly know, the newly minted Nobel laureate issued his famous appeal for freedom of choice in currencies. Uh, he didn't object to governments issuing money, said Hayek. He, he objected to governments monopolizing the right to issue money. He expressed the hope that uh, it will not be too long before complete freedom to deal in any money one likes will be regarded as the essential mark of a free society. You'd think that the world would have made up its mind by now. Uh, money is as old as the hills. Uh, credit, the promise to pay money, is as old as trust. Yet we earthlings uh, still search for an answer. Well, maybe we'll come up with something by 5 o'clock today. Uh, the need is urgent and obvious uh, to us, yet we must pause to consider the fact that there is nothing either obvious or urgent about the idea of sound money to the people who own so much of the other kind. The asset-holding portions of the community have hugely profited by 0% funding costs and the levitation of stock bond and real estate prices. The Dow is back to its highs, the U.S. Treasury is borrowing at rates that would lead a visitor from Mars to conjecture that the government is actually solvent. The dollar value of gold has been falling for two since 2011. Reciprocally, the world's faith in the pure paper dollar has been rising since 2011. Uh, if there's a crisis in money, it's news to most moneyed people. The bald fact is that we, believers in markets, are out of step with markets. 
My self-appointed task is to make the case that something is, in fact, very wrong. This being so, it behooves me to suggest the way forward, or bearing in mind Hayek's plea for choice, the many possible ways forward. Um, however, Cato has lined up the very people for that job. Now, fundamental monetary reform is no easy sale in this time of not-so-terrible growth and sky-high asset prices. The QE-era dollar is still the Coca-Cola of world monetary brands. Not many, even in this room, would disdain to pick up a greenback if they saw one lying on the sidewalk. From the vantage point of monetary reform, the Republican triumph on Tuesday was not quite satisfying. Uh, in New Jersey, Jeff Bell running on a gold standard platform against Democrat Cory Booker lost 56-42. Still, it does amaze me that the system in place remains in place. You could write about its many, you could write a book about its many demerits, and some of us have. 100 years ago, we had the gold standard. Today, we have the PhD standard. 100 years ago, the stockholders of a nationally chartered bank were responsible for the solvency of the institution in which they owned a fractional interest. Today, we have too big to fail. Progress is the rule in American enterprise. Retrogression is the rule in American money and banking and regulation. With respect to the dollar and high finance, we seem to be moving backwards. This is not the council of despair. As people consent to monetary arrangements, so may they withhold consent. So may they press for alternative arrangements. It's easy to forget that in mid-20th century America, no citizen could lawfully own gold. Principled men and women call and ended that New Deal fatwa, as well as the kindred prohibition against entering into contact, contracts specifying payment in gold. Writing in the snail mail era, Hayek compared the government's monopoly over money to its monopoly over the post office. Email disrupted the post office. Maybe Bitcoin, Bitcoin or Bitgold or some something we'll hear about later, maybe that will disrupt the Fed. Something should disrupt it before it disrupts, indeed, ruins us. Every new financial crisis brings a bigger, more radical central bank intervention. You do wonder what they'll do next time. At crisis-racked intervals since 1993, they have pushed the federal funds rate steadily lower to 3%, 2%, 1%, and now 0%. In Europe, the authorities have dropped short-dated yields to less than zero. Uh, the great British journalist Walter Badgett warned that ultra-low interest rates induce speculative bubbles. John Bull can stand anything, but he can't stand 2% was Badgett's epigram epigrammatic phrasing of that idea. He meant positive 2%. The Yellens and the Draghis and the Kurotas are going to force a reconsideration of the theory of interest. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter called interest a permanent net income. It flows, said he, to the capitalist without ever exhausting the capital from which it comes and therefore without any necessary limit to its continuous. Well, yes and no. Uh, the Swiss government two-year note changed hands yesterday at a price to yield minus 11 0.7 basis points to maturity, minus, minus 11.7 basis points. The minus sign indicates that your principal shrinks, not grows. Continuously invested at that particular negative rate, one's principal would be sawed in half in 592 years. You may call that usury in reverse. And I hope the Pope is happy. 
What's new today isn't ultra-low interest rates. They were as low in Queen Victoria's time as they are now, and they were as low in President Truman's time as they are today. What is new is governmentally sponsored asset booms superimposed on ultra-low interest rates. The complicity of the American financial establishment with this species of price control is another kind of monetary monopoly, novelty. Interest rates are, of course, prices. They are the prices that set investment hurdle rates and that discount the present value of estimated future cash flows. They are the investment traffic signals of a free economy. If you recall, the Fed was conscripted into government service in World War II. It became the bond-buying arm of the Treasury, nor Come the peace, did the Treasury set its captive free? The Fed chafed under its continued subjugation. It bridled at pegging bond yields at 2% or 2 and a quarter in the face of what had become a virulent post-war inflation. Others protested, too, including the president of the New York Stock Exchange and the House Economist of Bankers Trust and what is today Citibank. To strike a preemptive blow against flyaway asset prices, the Fed ordered that no one could buy stocks using margin debt it was cash on the barrel head or nothing. This was 1946. You know the world has changed when the Fed not only doesn't resist an interest rate-induced bull market, but actually sponsors one. In 2011, under gentle questioning from the CNBC correspondent Steve Leisman, then-Chairman Ben Bernanke expressed his satisfaction at the liftoff of share prices. He singled out the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index for special mention. Uh, its angle of ascent was even steeper and therefore more stimulative than that of the S&P 500. As justification for these intrusions, the Fed cited the theory of the uh, <clears throat> so-called portfolio balance channel. My friend Paul Isaac, a talented Wall Street practitioner, assesses these radical policies in simpler language. They are, he observes, the largest, most explicit, and prolonged exercise in trickle-down economics in American history. With respect to the radicalization of monetary policy, investors en masse resemble the sleepy frog in the warming saucepan. They don't jump out while the jumping is good. At that, professional investors wouldn't jump. They couldn't jump, in fact, if they even wanted to. They are paid to invest, not to pass judgment on the administration of monetary policy. Uh, monetary criticism is our line of work, not theirs. And as a rule, if theirs pays better. The temperature in the Federal Reserve saucepan rose to the boiling point as long ago as October 15, 1998. It was an options expiration day, this date in October 1998, therefore a day primed for stock market volatility. Out of the blue at 3.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time came news of a one-quarter of 1% cut in the federal funds rate. In the next 56 minutes, the S&P 500 leapt by 7%. Long-term capital management was then combusting, but the world was hardly coming to an end. The unemployment rate stood at just 4.5%. The Feds knew which buttons to press, and they have kept right on pressing them. It's a sign of the time, surely, that these interventions have come to seem almost normal. I'm reminded of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's phrase, defining deviancy downward. In monetary policy, the once unspeakable, indeed unimaginable, has become the commonplace. You get a sense of how far we've come, either up or down according to political and monetary preference, by recalling the close of the Bretton Woods system in 1971. 
the dollar had been defined as 1 35th of an ounce of gold. And on August 15, 1971, President Nixon redefined it as a piece of paper. Foreign governments had been entitled to exchange unwanted greenbacks for gold at that statutory rate. And on, October, on August 15th, uh, Nixon withdrew that privilege. Bretton Woods was very far indeed from the real gold standard, but it did exert a helpful check on American public finance. How starchy and orthodox it seems from the vantage point of QE. It did not seem orthodox to Hayek. Good riddance to it, he said in 1976. Holy Keynesian was his malediction on the post-World War II monetary structure. You can only begin to imagine what Hayek would have to say about central banks conjuring dematerialized script on iPhones. To what end do they conjure? Why? To beat back deflation. By deflation, the mandarins mean a substandard rate of inflation. How the statisticians can possibly calculate inflation rates to tolerances exacting enough to validate debates, interminable debates, over the difference between, for instance, 2% per annum and 1.734% per annum is quite beyond me. Neither do I understand why the central bankers refuse to admit that in a time of technological wonder, prices ought to be falling, as it costs less to make things, so certainly should it cost less to buy them. Mario Draghi, president of the European Central Bank, is a champion of faux statistical precision. He has announced his determination to steer the fortunes of the continent of Europe according to the squiggles of something called the five-year five -year euro inflation swap rate. That would be a market-based expression of expectations for inflation in the half decade starting in 2019. Hey, Mario, is it going to rain next Thursday? We don't know. <laughs> Curious minds will wonder how any mortal being could accurately define such a distant set of events. Let us now, ladies and gentlemen, imagine the scene in a boardroom of a German bank in the spring of 1914. A director's meeting is in progress. Uh, the chairman of the board polls the assembled about the financial outlook. Uh, it's a time of peace, of course, the spring of 1914. The mark is as good as gold. The world is settled. I asked the chairman, anyone care to venture a forecast of the rate of inflation eight years out? Here is what nobody says in reply. Quote, a great war will shatter Germany and the world. Nothing will ever be the same again. The German cost of living index, which is now set at one, will hit 218,000 million come November 1923. The mark will become worthless after which it will become very worthless. <laughs> Returning to the 21st century, Switzerland is pledging to defend its currency with its last ounce of breath, uh, that is to protect it from unwanted appreciation against Mario Draghi's euro. The Swiss National Bank, as you know, is not purely a central bank. It is partly a wealth fund, partly a conjuring act. Its mission is to protect Swiss exporters against a too high Swiss franc exchange rate. And to this end, the Swiss National Bank creates Swiss francs by the gondola car full. With those francs, it buys euros. And with those euros, it buys dollars. 
what to do with the dollars? Well, this, the Swiss being modernists and uh, proponents of modern portfolio theory, diversify. And with some of those dollars, with many of them indeed, they buy American equities, $27 billion worth at last report. Now, here is a metaphysical head-scratcher. The francs cost nothing to create, ditto the euros, ditto the dollars, yet these disembodied monetary claims secure fractional interests in American public companies. Something for nothing indeed. On November 30th, Swiss voters go to the polls to cast their ballots uh, on a referendum that would effectively take the Swiss National Bank out of the money spending business by requiring it to hold substantially more gold than it currently does. The technical merits of this referendum, I suppose, are debatable, but one must applaud the spirit of popular revolt against the rule of the monetary mandarins. Trust is at the root of all monetary systems. And ours is peculiarly faith-based. We trust the central bankers, not you and me perhaps, but most people. Uh, this trusting majority includes critically most people who hold the central bankers' money. In their turn, the central bankers trust the accuracy of the government's statistics on which they profess to be dependent. And the central bankers trust their so-called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. These are, of course, the econometric contraptions that fail to flag the biggest, most disastrous credit event in the professional lives of the model builders. What the mandarins distrust, what they distrust, is the resiliency of the price mechanism. And yet, as I say, markets trust the mandarins. Sentient people are lending at some of the lowest rates in a half century. They will be repaid in a currency of no intrinsic value that the Federal Reserve has positively pledged to depreciate. Still, they lend. 30-year Treasury bonds are priced to yield just 3%. Under the classical gold standard, as Jim mentioned a moment ago, prices and wages were expected to adjust to economic disequilibria. Under the PhD standard, it's interest rates and exchange rates and asset prices that are expected to do the adjusting. Now, you know about the gold standard. Money was a weight or measure, specifically a weight or a measure of gold. Banknotes were convertible into gold. Central banks of gold standard nations stood ready to exchange notes for gold and vice versa. Bullion moved freely from one gold standard nation to another, no capital controls. Now, in 1959, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York published a monograph on the workings of the classical gold standard. Now, the author, Arthur Bloomfield, summarized thus, and bear in mind this was again published by the New York Fed. Quote, from about 1880 to 1914, the exchange rates of the various gold standard countries move within narrow limits approximating their respective gold points without the support of exchange restrictions, import quotas, or related controls, which were virtually unknown even for currencies on paper or silver standards. Only a trifling number of countries were forced off the gold standard once adopted, and devaluation of gold currencies was highly exceptional. Yet all this was achieved in spite of a volume of international reserves that, for many of the countries at least, was amazingly small, and in spite of only a minimum of international cooperation. This remarkable, remarkable performance um, especially, uh, essentially the product of an unusually favorable combination of historical circumstances, appears all the more striking when contrasted with the turbulence of post-1914 international financial experience and remains, even today, a source of some measure of fascination and indeed of puzzlement 
to students of monetary affairs. Well, if, if uh, Eisenhower-era America scratched its head over the classical gold standard, what, pray, will posterity make of the PhD standard? Likely, it will be even more baffled than we are. Now, imagine trying to explain present-day arrangements to your 20-something grandchild a couple of decades hence. After the crash of, say, 2016, that wiped out the youngsters' uh, trust fund and provoked a central bank response so heavy-handed as to shatter the confidence even of Wall Street in the Federal Reserve's techniques. I expect you'd be winding up saying something like this. Uh, you'd be saying, uh, my generation uh, gave former tenured economics professors discretionary authority to fabricate money and to fix interest rates. We put the cart of asset prices before the horse of enterprise. We entertained the fantasy that high asset prices made for prosperity rather than the other way around. We actually worked to foster inflation, which we called price stability. Uh, this uh, was on the eve of the uh, hyperinflation of 2017. We seem to have miscalculated. Over the course of the day, you will hear monetary prescriptions from across the spectrum of Hayekian choice, from Bitcoin revolutionaries to constitutional conservatives to gold standard adherents. Uh, bearing in mind how little disposed is the moneyed world for a thoroughgoing overhaul, perhaps we should not pass up the opportunity uh, to achieve some small interim victories before a complete triumph is achieved. Uh, change in the intellectual climate necessarily precedes change in the statute books, and here, of course, Cato is doing yeoman's work. Maybe the Cato staff uh, could assemble a modest, though imaginative, agenda for the new Republican Senate. Why not, for example, as a gesture of bipartisan comedy, a bill to add, a bill to add rather than to subtract, um, a monetary bureaucracy? Uh, I would support legislation to create a new department of unintended consequences within the Federal Reserve, <laughs> give it a big budget and a new properly imposing headquarters building with lots of neon signage. Or another hands across the aisle to the liberals, a bill to institute free-range, fresh-from-market, organic interest rates in lieu of the government-issued hothouse kind. Or here, and I borrow from my friend Larry Parks, a bill to remove federal taxation from U.S. gold and silver eagles. As Larry observes, existing statutes and Supreme Court decisions already authorize these coins as legal tender for their face amounts. If the IRS were to treat these coins as U.S. currency instead of as property in accordance with existing law, and stop taxing them, economic laws will trump political ones. I will account as victorious when the name of the chairman or the chair of the Federal Reserve Board is just as obscure as that of the chairman of the Weights and Measures Division of the Department of Commerce. Now, come to think of it, the monetary millennium will arrive when the dollar reverts to a tangible weight or measure, and perhaps when the Weights and Measures Division and the Federal Reserve Board are joined in bureaucratic matrimony. <laughs> well, that's my speech. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Jim. That was uh, a very uh, excellent speech. I especially like the uh, Department of Unintended Consequences idea. 
Uh, I wanted to uh, point out um, a couple people that uh, helped a lot in this monetary conference that uh, I didn't do in my opening remarks. Um, the Cato staff's done a yeoman job in helping uh, put this conference together, especially uh, Rachel Goldman. Is Rachel here? She's probably out working someplace. And uh, Mackenzie Johnson and, uh, and Bob Garber. Uh, so thanks very much for your help. Also, they asked me to uh, say, for those of you that uh, like to tweet, uh, the hashtag is right up there, hashtag CatoMC14. Okay. So let's, uh, let's spend a few minutes with uh, questions. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, take them. Why don't you come up here, Jim, and you can questions. Just, uh, if you will, there's going to be a mic coming around, so portable mic. Uh, just raise your hand and uh, keep the question short. Uh, please introduce yourself, and uh, if you raise your hand, I'll begin the Thanks, Jim. Um, uh, my name is Mark Edge. I host a nationally syndicated radio program. It's on 160 stations. I find that this uh, topic is a little dry for the average person. It's difficult for them to fathom. If you had one thing that you could say to a person who's generally ignorant of monetary policy. That's a, that's a pretty big uh, subset. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very large subset. And uh, you know, sadly, it's those people that, uh, that make the decisions sort of through force of will. What would you say to them? How would you uh, convince them in you know, one short soundbite? I guess I'd pose the common sense test. Uh, uh, if it costs nothing to produce, is it worth anything? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Hi, Andy LaPerrier, Cornerstone Macro. Um, uh, maybe uh, two questions. Uh, your first one just kind of sparked by what you just said, so it doesn't uh, cost anything to produce. Um, right now, the costs of uh, what the Fed's doing appear to be low. Um, you suggested hyperinflation as potential costs. Do you see any costs that we're incurring now? How is it distorting the economic system now in ways uh, most people don't think higher stock prices is a, is a bad thing? So how is it distorting the economy in a way that um, is, is hurting our economy? Um, and then what would you suggest, other than reading your books, which of course we'll do, um, what else can we uh, read that you think might provide some insight into how the next crisis might unfold? Uh, um, Andy, as to the first, as to the uh, cost, here's a, here's a, uh, a kind of a, perhaps a too subtle, but I, th I think it's, a, it's a, a genuine cost, and that is the, uh, one of the costs of, uh, of uh, uh, concessionary nominal interest rates, especially in the world of corporate debt, all this cost is to uh, sustain in solvency companies that perhaps ought not to be still in business, and thereby going out of business would clear the way for entrepreneurs and for new ideas. Um, uh, I think that that uh, that junk bond yields, and they were pressed down to four and five percent were a source not of dynamism, but of, uh, of stultification. Uh, what you want is, uh, is uh, 
paradoxically in a, in a capitalist society is life and death in the forest, you know, both death and life on the forest floor. You, you want uh, growth and you want, the, uh, you want the pairing away of deadwood. And um, so that's, that's, that's my nomination for an unseen cost to this is, is I, I think that these interest rates have, have, uh, have not served the, cost of, the cause of dynamism. On the contrary, have set it back um, one of the, uh, as to the books, uh, I, uh, one of the books we gave away at the fall grants event was uh, something called When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, which is a, a wonderfully literate and accessible history of the Weimar inflation. And uh, I'm not sure that a Weimar inflation is what uh, lies ahead of us, but uh, you can't help in reading this book to see all manner of, of make all manner of uh, comparisons with the present day, with especially with the the notions of what money is and, and what it isn't. So I commend to you uh, When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson. Uh, my name is Bernard von Nothaus. I'm the monetary architect for the Liberty Dollar. I'm also the federally convicted felon uh, for doing the Liberty Dollar and now facing 22 years in prison. Thank you very much. The amazing thing is that I'm here today and that I was convicted four years ago and I'm still waiting sentence. So Jim, how do you see a solution to a current situation? Well, but when I get to be president, you're the Fed chairman. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, we have a. We have uh, successful, successive panels uh, that are going to answer that question. I think to uh, to a T. So I'm going to yield to them. I think we're almost out of time anyway. Uh, but I, I certainly do not have a, a short answer to this. I, um, uh, having said that, I should stop talking, which I will. Carl Golovin, isn't it true that really the dollar has a tremendous cost, and that since we withdrew from the Bretton Woods Agreement, we've essentially backed the dollar with now compelling by military force OPEC countries to sell their oil priced only in the U.S. dollars. So a tr tremendous uh, cost of life and expense of the militarization of the Middle East. Um, so the question had to do with the, uh, the geopolitical consequences of a dollar that uh, is backed uh, by military force rather than by bullion. I'd, I, um, there were plenty of wars before, you know, during the Bretton Woods era. I'm not sure if we're any more militarized uh, now than we were then. So I'm going to think about the premise of the question, uh, Carl. I'm not sure I accept it. Vietnam was fought uh, before Nixon got in the television Sunday night in August 1971. So there were plenty of wars before uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iraq again. Anyway, Jim, thank you, and thank you, Cato. Mm -hmm.